Hello, everybody, and welcome to Zoological Bites, the show where the hosts don't bite, but our subjects just might. My name's Allie, and I am not an expert. And my name's Anna, and I am certainly not an expert. So we're back. And in a new house. A much noisier house. Yes, we're going to be testing out a couple recording situations over the next few episodes because um, it's a much nicer house to live in, but a much busier house to record in. Yeah, it's it's got a lot more light and windows, but that's very bad for recording. So anyway, we're closer we, to downtown. Yes, which means we have more cars in the background. It also right, means I have more access to ice cream. Right now, we're deciding between the background noise of the fridge and cars versus the background noise of possible chickens. So and the plumbing. Don't forget the plumbing. You, oh, right, I know you plumbing. don't hear the plumbing. I do. Yeah, our upstairs. We're our bedroom is below our upstairs neighbor's uh, bathroom. So. But we also have an ensuite, which just gurgles. Yeah. So anyways, there's background noise no matter where we go in the house. But we're We're figuring it out. We're figuring it out. Anyway, so we're in a new house. And the other big thing that's going on for us and for a lot of other people right now is that I have a plague mask. I was going to say school. Oh, right. You know, school that starts in like a week today. It's really cool. I got it on Etsy. It looks really cool. I have to stare this thing in the face. She's not wearing it right now, otherwise her audio would be even weirder. <laughs> and I'm sure we'd hear the constant tapping of, I kid you not, the literal beak of the mask. It's full on got a beak against her That's mic. beautiful. The things I put up with. Anyhow, school. Yes, school. So I'm actually going back to my last term of school, which involved never stepping foot on campus, and a lot of science courses well anth science courses some research courses and stuff like that meanwhile i'm going into my to borrow ali's word semester of school um and i will have one class on campus because art yes it's gonna be ali have you realized it's gonna be all of the art and music students on campus and like theater students probably and writing writing will be on campus too workshops oh i guess you have to do them in person there's no way around it really but anyways, you realize that it's going to be all of the best and also most obnoxious people on campus. We're going to have a field day. You also know the science kids are on campus, right? Yeah, but they're on the other side of campus. So there's going to be a campus war is what Anna's saying. I'm just saying that we're going to have a great time partying with each other from a safe distance. Joke's on you, Anna. You never would stay on campus longer than absolutely necessary. That's true. I'm just going to sit in this office, which we're currently recording in. So <laughs> The one that she's been in since we got here. Yeah, I haven't left this room, basically. I live in this room. Mm-hmm. Let's ignore the beautiful bed curtains and everything I made and all the changes I've done to the house. I just live in this one space. I mean, really, yeah. <laughs> let's get let's get into it, though. But yes, I was trying to segue school into the fact that a lot of people are going to be going back to biology. Not Anna, who's never taken biology. No, I haven't. Which makes her the perfect layman for this show. But a lot of you are going back to school And I hate to think of it, but uh, if we do this episode well enough, some of you might be listening to it as part of your school. (laughs) Lofty dreams, Allie. Lofty dreams. I don't know. If IB would do this, I used Crash Course to get through IB. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying we're not going to be used, like, in schools. Anyway, no, we're not going to be used in schools, but it might be a random teacher recommends us. And there's actually going to be three parts to this series that we're doing. The first one, which we're doing today, is going to be the most interesting and engaging part, the history of evolutionary theory. 
if I don't respond for a while, I've fallen asleep. Yeah, it's um, it wasn't fun. I have to admit when I had to learn it in grade 11, a bit past the level that I'm going to be talking about it here. But I promise you, this is more interesting than sitting in a class and just going through a list of dates when theories changed. I don't think you need to convince people of that, Allie. <laughs> I promise. Um, and next week, we're going to be talking about the different mechanisms of our current evolutionary theory. So how different functions, how like bottlenecks, things like that, which all of these terms mean nothing, but I don't know a better way to describe them quickly. But it's the different ways that evolution occurs in nature and in not nature as well. And then for our last episode, we're going to talk about a topic which I think is kind of missed a lot in the conversation about evolution because there's such a divide between social science and STEM. Uh, but I want to kind of bring them together and talk a little bit about the historic, which is going to be a heavy topic, but the historical misuse of evolutionary theory. Weaponized so, evolution. Weaponized evolution. That's a great way or to well, put it. Well, weaponized evolutionary theory. Yes. So I think that it's a heavy topic, and I understand if there's people who don't listen to that episode and if that episode isn't as funny, but I think it's an important topic to discuss because those who don't learn history are doomed to repeat it, and we've seen moments of this come again and again throughout mostly European history, but throughout world history. Yeah, and don't don't worry, we're not going to judge you for skipping any episode of this podcast Unless you just skipped it because you didn't like it, in which case, screw you. <laughs> listen to our podcast. Wouldn't they have had to listen to it to know they didn't like it? I'm saying like they listened to like, no, and like they looked at the description or something and they're like, eh, I don't want to listen to it. In that case, go back and listen to it, you coward. What if they just don't like wolves? Well, or don't want to learn about the naked mole rat queen? Well, then they better learn to like it. <laughs> I, I do not endorse shoving wolves down anyone's throat. Anna, for some reason, does. I do not. <laughs> That's a whole other thing, Allie. <laughs> One other thing I wanted to go over after talking about what the series is going to be is what the series is not going to be. We're not here to debate if evolution is real. The philosophy that I've developed over the years is that no one ever actually changes anyone's mind. You can only change your own mind. Yes. So I'm welcome to provide as much information and facts as I want to someone who doesn't believe what I believe, but in the end, they can just choose to ignore me. It's up to them to take those facts and decide that they're valid enough to change their mind. So if you're someone who doesn't believe in evolution and you're here to learn and just want to get some information about what other people think, that's great. I totally support you listening to this podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in hearing about other people's opinions. But if you're here to throw a fit in our comments section or send us a very angry email. I don't think that anyone is that invested in our podcast to send us an angry email. I don't know. But if that's the case and you're here just to get enraged, then get enraged all you want. But I don't want to hear about it. I would swear in this moment, but we're a family-friendly podcast, so I won't. But um, speaking of creationists, so Anna, what has been your evolution education? I mean, my evolution education was very different at home versus at school, because at school I learned the things that most people learn. But at home, with my conservative Christian family, I learned from my dad that the earth is 6,000 years old, and 
that evolution is a hoax and not real and ridiculous and untenable as a theory. I remember watching documentaries with my dad and watching him, like, swear and get very, very, very angry at uh, any sort of documentaries that talked about evolution. I was encouraged to ignore what I learned in school about evolution. See, and the funny thing is, I didn't really understand what I was supposed to believe and what I wasn't supposed to believe. So funny story, in grade seven, I argued somebody about whether a woolly mammoth existed. I was like, ha, that's ridiculous. Woolly mammoths existing. Because I thought that, that was part of the fiction of evolution. And I went home and my parents were like, no, they existed. I'm like, okay, um, then why, why don't they exist? Why don't they exist? And why, yeah, why isn't evolution real then? I didn't ask them that, but that was my thought. Anyways, that was about the moment where I decided that my parents didn't know much about it and that I was going to yeah, go along with evolu the evolutionary theory. <laughs> anyway, so the funny thing is, actually, if your parents had been around, I don't know, like 300, 400 years ago, they would have been pretty on par with our current understanding of evolution at that time. Okay, on par with our understanding of evolution, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, you only need to go back like 50 to 100 years for that to be the widely accepted version. Well, not, not the widely, scientific communities, not scientific communities, but um, which I also like want to stress popular culture. Yeah, which I also want to stress, we are specifically talking about the evolution of the the evolution, the, the evolution of the evolutionary theory. Yes, as it relates to scientific communities in Europe and Western cultures. That's what I was taught, and I sadly don't know a whole lot about how the theories of evolution evolved in different parts of the world. And how our own were influenced by other cultures. Yeah. But what I was saying was that about 300 years ago or so, your parents would be great scientists, or as they were called, natural theologists. Or like, natural theologists, I think. It depends how you want to say it. Like Newton. Yes, kind of like Newton. But how our earliest kind of scientific theory, mind you, this is when science was first kind of becoming a realm of study, and it was still heavily connected with the church. Mm -hmm. For example, Mendel, who is considered the grandfather of genetics, was a monk. Science was very connected to philosophy at that time. Yeah. So our earliest understanding of evolution was that it doesn't exist. That everything was, and I got this from Crash Course because I think it's hilarious, was a DBG. What's a DBG? A designed by God. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I grew up with illustrated Bibles that showed all of the animals in the beginning of creation just as they are now. Yeah. Now, I want you to do um, a little checklist for me and say if these are things you were taught as a kid. Sure. So, thing. everything is designed by God. Yes. The world is only 6,000 years old. Yes. God had a perfect image for every creature, and that's what they are. Yep. Uh, it never changes. Mm-hmm. And finally, there's no point in questioning it. Yeah. Okay. So, yes, that's about what we were heavily following in the scientific community 300, 400 years ago. In, in addition to that, there was also the main way of looking at creation was through what's called the great chain of being. Mm -hmm. which was kind of a hierarchy of life. Back in grade school, if you ever did the like medieval studies unit where you like looked at the hierarchy of like there was the king and then oh, there was the clergy yeah, 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 and then there was yeah. the peasants and all that stuff, 
It's basically that, but for all living organisms. And I highlight living because it went like this. Were mice at the top and then dolphins and then humans? No, that that is from Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And sadly, no, that is not what the combination of Christian mythology and Aristotle's philosophy, which was combined great great chain of being, created. Well, I'm gonna create my own chain of great chain of being. Which is mice, then dolphins, then humans, then the rest of things. Just everything else is in one big category. Yeah. <laughs> well, does that one big category include minerals as a living thing? What? Aristotle, his four categories of living things were humans, animals, plants, and minerals. Okay, okay, I can see where he's coming from. Yeah, those were the four living things, and that's the order they were put in for the hierarchy of the great chain of being. Now, what was added with Christian mythologies was, was God at the top? God, angels. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then humans, animals, plants, and still minerals, which were considered living things at the time. <laughs> well, because angels were created first, but they were kind of too perfect, so they were boring, and so God created humans. And then he gets mad when you mess up. Yeah. It's kind of... I almost swore there. <laughs> I'll, I'll say it's kind of messed up. Yeah, yeah. But we all know what word Anna was about to blurt out. <laughs> but yes. So the great chain of being, which was both our earliest understanding of evolution, but also our earliest understanding of taxonomy, which is how we still categorize animals and living organisms today. Is couple... that when you take dead animals and stuff them? That's taxidermy, and you know that. <laughs> but yes, it's the great chain of being went God, angels, humans, animals, plants, and minerals. Oh, to be a lowly mineral with oh. no cares in the world. <laughs> a lowly mineral with no cares in the world. I also would like to point out that it goes very much against the uh, secondary catchphrase of this show, humans ain't special, because humans and animals are different categories in this. Mm-hmm. I object to that more than God and angels being up there. <laughs> I would I would agree, though, that kind of it goes animals, then plants, then rocks. Yeah, that's for complexity in most cases, yes. But that's its own conversation. And for sentience. Yeah. That's its own conversation, though, that we'll have in a very different episode. But yes, this was originally taken from Aristotle and then more or less Christianized. But eventually, going through the whole... Earth is 6,000 years old. Everything has never changed. No use questioning it. But these things got a bit complicated when we started studying fossils and geology. Geology came first. And there's this concept called... Well, I would imagine that geology comes before fossils. Like, uh, you gotta study the rocks before you find the fancy rocks. I was gonna say, good, you know, fossils are rocks. Yeah. <laughs> they are rocks, not biological materials, and that's why we can't get genetic samplings from them. That's why we can't Jurassic Park them. Yes, we cannot Jurassic Park fossils. Though some do have material still attached to them. Once something's been completely fossilized, there's nothing left. Or the mosquitoes trapped in amber. Yes. Anyway, getting away from Anna trying to recreate Jurassic Park. I think that should be the goal of all science. <laughs> I think it should not be based on how the four or is it five? I think it's almost six, right? Jurassic Park movies have gone. I haven't kept track. There's a lot of Jurassic Park movies and all of them conclude with 
don't do this. All I'm saying is I think I could control it better. That's what they all thought. <laughs> I was also going to say with what expertise? With the your expertise- art degree? Yeah, the expertise of I can draw a fancy gate and then somebody else can make it and I'll be like, yeah, that'll hold the, the uh, dinosaurs in. Yes, because fancy always means high quality. And I'll be nice to the dinosaurs. I don't think niceness had anything to do with their hunger for flesh. Anyway, this has nothing to do with our conversation about evolution. I was just proud that Anna knew that fossils were rocks. Fossils are fancy rocks. But yes, geology had already pushed back the timeline and the history of the Earth to, let's just go with way past 6,000 years. Not by my dad's count. And the way this ha- the way they were able to do this is through a method called uniformitarianism, which is a fun word to say. Uniformitarianism. See, it's fun. Yeah. Anyway, uniformitarianism, which says that Earth's processes happen at kind of a set rate. And for example, the way mountains form and change, it takes time to do that. And by calculating the time it takes for that to happen, you can count backwards to essentially when the Earth began. Um. I might be skipping ahead a little bit, but when did carbon dating come into play? That is an entirely different episode, but it did not happen at this point, because carbon dating is a relatively modern invention, because we needed to know about carbon decay, and we needed to know the timeline of radioactive events. We needed to know how old those fossils be. Actually, it only works with fossils up to 50,000 years old. Ah, that's disappointing. But yes... Uniformitarianism Uniformitarianism <laughs> says that the Earth has to be a certain age, otherwise it would not look the way it does. So we already knew, unless you were very staunch religious and refused to accept this, we already knew that the Earth had to be much older than 6,000 years. The oldest tree is almost 10,000 years old. Yeah, so like, yeah, there, there are trees older than that. There are mm-hmm. trees older than creationism. But yes, so... There are trees that are almost the exact same age as the beginning of civilization. Because the beginning of civilization is pinned at about 10,000 years ago. Cool. Anyway, so we already knew, based on geology and uniformitarianism, that the Earth had to be older than 6,000 years. And this got even more complicated with the current understanding of evolution at the time, because then we started finding fossils, which were very much not the species that currently existed. So, uh, with the discovery of fossils, there was a whole issue of things change. What are we going to do? It looks like things must change. Otherwise, what happened to all these guys? And someone came up with a theory for that, a way of not explaining that away, but of explaining it. And that was a French man named Cuvier, or Cuvier, C-U-L-V-I-E-R. Cuvier? Cuvier. Cuvier would be how he said in French. In English, in science, we call him Cuvier. (laughs) but he came up with a theory known as catastrophism and it's important to note because i know that you've heard this mentioned before probably that catastrophism originally was a secular theory cuvier was studying in the age of the freight the french enlightenment so there was a huge divide between life and religion and for example science was part of that so when he wrote this theory in french and came up with it It wasn't talking about any religious connection. All he said was that a way of understanding the fossil record was that potentially in the past, there was life similar to how it is now, 
And then these massive catastrophic, catastrophism, these massive catastrophic events, or catastrophic, however you want to say say it. I was going to say, do you mean catastrophic? These major natural catastrophes would come along and wipe out almost all life on the planet, and then it would come back in little bits and pieces. Now, the problem came when his work was translated to English. That's always the problem. Yes. The darn English. Yeah, the darn British. They do it every time. (laughs) Because the British translators decided, hey, this sounds like it could be religious. So it's God destroys the world every... Yes, they often associated it back to the idea of the biblical flood. Oh, yes. With Noah and all this. It was the idea that in English, it became the idea that every such and such amount of time, God wipes out all life on the planet because he's done with it and he starts it again. So one of these examples was supposedly the biblical flood, all sorts of stuff. And of course, they didn't have any other ones. But of course, it's what's been happening over and over and over again. Oh, and I can tell you that there are many people living today who think it's about to happen again. Yeah, that's there's entire churches dedicated to that, aren't there? Oh, yeah. There's entire religions dedicated to that. Isn't that like the Seventh-day Adventists or whatever? It's also Christians, also Catholics. Yeah. They all believe that the world is about to end. Yes, this was a great way for religious people to explain away the fact that fossils exist. (laughs) And at this point, though, where, mind you, this point is still a ways away from where we are now. But at this point in time, we're finally beginning to move, separate science and religion. And this is where our, the primary theories of secular evolution come up in English history and English academia. But first, I think it's time we should look at some research grants and proposals. You remember it back to okay. So I forgot that we have two little ads this break. The first one is I want you all to read my short story. Please read do Allie's it. short story. So I had my first professional publication in the last month while we were on break, and it's actually free to access online. So please do. Please put lots of hits on the page so that they know that I'm totally a great author and not just advertising this a lot. <laughs> and they totally want to publish me again. So um, the piece is called Binary Stars, and it's published by the White Wall Review, which is Ryerson University's writing journal. And it's about a woman who's struggling with commitment issues and trying to get over her feelings for the one that got away. A very, very attractive fictional woman. Yes, she's also bi. So it's... A very, very attractive fictional woman. Yes. The ongoing joke in my uh, writing classes is that I write homonormativity, which is everyone's gay unless I directly state otherwise. (laughs) The other thing I want to go over is since everyone's getting back to school, I wanted to go over some great resources because school is looking a little different this year. And it means that for some people, it might make it a bit difficult to understand and learn in the way that they're used to and in the way that might work best for them. 
So what I wanted to talk about a little bit was some great places to get free or inexpensive reading materials and educational materials. So for example, one thing that you probably don't know is your local library likely has access to a bunch of online resources. For example, our library has access to a website very similar to kind of Skillshare, where you can learn different skills, whether they're related to your schooling or not. And you can access these for free with your library card. The next thing I want to talk about is the great usefulness of YouTube. And specifically, I used Crash Course a lot when I was still in high school. Oh, so did I. Learning this same stuff I'm now teaching you guys. <laughs> but yes, that can be very helpful. And I'm actually using YouTube a lot right now. I'm in a uh, self-paced course on computer science. And basically all they gave me was a textbook and some slides that summarize the textbook and then expected me to learn how to program. <laughs> so... YouTube has been real great for that. The only thing I recommend is that if you're using YouTube as a resource or a tool for your learning is to make sure to, usually the videos are about 10, maybe 15 minutes at most for a lot of things. So if you have time, I would definitely recommend comparing a couple videos just to make sure that it wasn't that one person got it wrong and now you have the wrong thing forever. Those are a great source of learning. And if you're out of school and don't have a lot of time to engage in a lot of scientific media, or if you're scared of the news, like honestly I have been, I've had to unsubscribe from our local newspaper, a great way to get little bits of news, especially from scientific communities, is a lot of scientific magazines. So I actually get two. I get Discovery Magazine, which is very science-focused, but I also recently started getting National Geographic. And that it's a great way to also support the arts as well with these magazines, because it's a great way for people, writers to be employed and photographers and artists to make money as well. And actually something that I've found useful is if you are learning about a particular subject and you're interested in like watching things rather than reading things, um, I recommend just taking a few minutes and trying to see if there's a documentary about what you're what you're learning about, and especially before you go into learning about it, um, watching that and getting kind of a basis of knowledge can really help you absorb new knowledge about it better. Mm -hmm. And uh, another thing is to try out other things with your learning. For example, Anna's in English, but she does not like to sit down and read for hours at a time, which she needs to do to get I through her work. To. Yeah, which she needs to do to get through her schoolwork. But what we discovered last term was that if she listens to it as like an audiobook, then it's a lot easier for her to sit down and listen to it. And this brings us to our, no, we're not sponsored by Audible. No one gives us money for this podcast. So I just, I wanted to wish everyone the best of luck with this school year. I know that it's weird and difficult and please be patient both with yourselves and your classmates and your teachers. A lot of everyone involved is having a tough time right now. Yeah, and if you need some advice on how to learn better or study better or just need some support, always feel free to email us at zoologicalbytes, that's bites with a Y, at gmail.com. Ooh, nice segue into our email yet again. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> well, I think that covers all of our grants and proposals, which really are just proposals and no grants because no one's giving us money. But I think it's time we get back to learning about evolution. Woo! Okay, I can't sit through you doing the whole So, 
Now we've reached the mid-1800s and evolutionary theories as we know them today are beginning to crop up. And it's important to know that there are two primary theories that pop up at this time. There's Lamarckian evolution and there's Darwinian evolution. A lot of times they're put in conflict or it's said that Darwinian kind of supplants Lamarckian evolution. And that's not necessarily true. So Lamarckian evolution came first. And it was the idea that inherited traits are passed down to the next generation. But, but the major difference between Lamarckian evolution and our current understanding of evolution is that Lamarck believed that traits that were gained over your lifetime could be passed down to the next generation. Mm. So not just genetic traits. Well, because we didn't understand genetics at the time. Uh, Mendel's work hadn't been rediscovered as of yet. He'd done it decades and decades past, but his work wouldn't come back up till the early 1900s. So the main thing that Lamarck said is that traits gained over your lifetime would be passed down to the next generation. And the consistently used example of this is with giraffes. Lamarck believed, and there's a great diagram of this that I remember looking at and that is firmly planted in my brain, but the idea that giraffes stretch their necks to reach better leaves, and as they kept stretching their necks, their necks got longer, and the next generation stretched their necks even more, and the next generation stretched them even more, and then we got giraffes. I like to think that if I just try hard enough, I could become a giraffe. <laughs> well, you're, you're great. According to Lamarck, your great-great-grandchildren could become giraffes. I, you, folks, you just need to keep stretching out your neck and eventually your ancestors can be giraffes. Descendants. Ancestors would imply that you're changing history. <laughs> you you, you will be the ancestor of giraffes? You can, you can stretch so hard that your ancestors will become giraffes. <laughs> I want to, Anna, how do you think that mechanism works? Can you talk about your, the the ananism evolution? The ananism evolution is if you try hard enough, you can do anything. I don't think that has anything to do with evolution at all. (laughs) Well, it includes evolution is what I'm saying. If you try hard enough, you can be evolution. Exactly. Okay. Well... We'll add that to the list of debunk evolutionary theories. How dare you? (laughs) But yes, that's what Lamarck believed in. And now the evolutionary theory that people most commonly know now, or at least I would hope so, is referred to as Darwinian evolution, which came out around the same time but was officially kind of published and brought to the public eye in 1859. And this was the theory that Darwin came up with during his journeys on the HMS Beagle down to the Galapagos. He was there for five years. He was collecting and studying different animals. And this, in combination with a bunch of readings that he'd done on populations and change in human populations, gave him the epiphany of evolutionary theory. You want to know what I think? What? I think a really old turtle told him about how evolution works. Just a really old turtle? Yeah, who was old enough to know how evolution works. But yes, so Darwin, and that's the, yeah, he said he finishes in the Galapagos, and he came up, combining that with his readings, he came up with his version of evolutionary theory, which was published in 1859. But the funny thing is, he actually had been ruminating on it for years and years. He was too scared to publish because it was so against what a lot of people had accepted as how evolution worked. I mean, who told you that? Darwin? Of course he told you that he'd been thinking of that for, like, a whole bunch of years. Well, and the important thing is, 
there's someone who came up with this theory around the same time and actually acted on it, but we never learn about him. Aha, uh -huh. see, see what I mean? I think Darwin just said that he'd been thinking about it. It's like, it's like when somebody else in the class answers the question, you're like, oh yeah, I was gonna say that. No, you weren't. You just wanted to take the credit. You might have had a half-formed thought, but that doesn't mean that you actually knew the answer. Well, here's the story. So there was a man named Wallace. That was his last name. And he was not rich like Darwin. Darwin came from a long history of very wealthy kind of landed gentry in England. Wallace, on the other hand, did not. Wallace had to drop out of school at the age of 16 to support his family. And he supported his family by going on expedition to places in South America and Southeast Asia to collect specimens for wealthier people. But while he was doing this, he made some of the same observations Darwin did and did some of the same reading that Darwin did. Now, while he was sick in bed in Southeast Asia because he got sick while on campaign, he came up with the theory of evolution as we know it today. And in his moment of brilliance, he decided he was going to talk with another um, natural theologist, Darwin, about his theory. I see. So he wrote a letter to Darwin saying, hey, I came up with this and I know that you do some work and you've been on this kind of expedition. Like, what do you think? And Darwin freaked out because, oh my God, someone else is coming up with my theory. I sat on my hands for too long. I sat on my butt for too long and now I'm going to lose it. So actually, the first publication talking about Darwinian evolution, which I'll give you the more concrete definition for in a moment, I'm trying to build up suspense, uh, was actually written as a joint paper between Darwin and Wallace. Mm. Now, this was essentially a small paper and a letter to an editor of a scientific journal. It was Darwin who, years later, in, 19, in 1859 published The Origin of the Species, which is the much longer account of his time on the HMS Beagle and his understanding of evolutionary theory. So I am apt to believe that Darwin did have a working theory of evolution based on the fact that he then wrote this massive book. But suffice to say, we often are not told about Wallace, who also came up with this theory at the same time and was the one who finally pushed Darwin to say anything about his theory. And we're not taught about him because he wasn't rich and famous already. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, socioeconomic disparity. Always, Always gets you. But yes, so the theory of evolution that Darwin and Wallace came up with is the basis of our theory today, but our modern theory has continued to evolve. What Darwin and Wallace came up with was the idea of natural selection and competition, which is the fact that it is the competition for resources between organisms of the same species, organisms of different species, that creates evolution and survival of the fittest. So those are the three concepts that Darwin and Wallace came up with. Natural selection, which is that only the strong survive. Survival of the fittest, which means that there's competition between those that are strong and those that are weak, which means the weak are eliminated. And competition, which relates to both of those. It's the idea that people have to fight over resources and, organ well, organisms fight over resources. What they didn't mention and did not know at the time was the mechanism in which evolution occurred. 
So how traits were passed on, how new traits originated, which are things that have become, that we've developed a better understanding with, with more modern technology. For example, so following the publication of The Origin of the Species and the growing prevalence of it in the scientific community opened up the doors for the rediscovery of Mendel's work, who studied pea plants and discovered the first evidence towards genetic inheritance, the idea that the parents of, a ch of an offspring pass on some of their traits to that offspring. Can I make a guess? Yes. So I guess that new traits come, come about by genetic mutation. Yes, they do. So though our current understanding of evolution is still based on Darwin's theory, there are pieces that Darwin admitted to not knowing, which is great for him. He didn't try to say, oh, I totally know how this works. He said, hey, I don't know what's going on here. All I know is these things happen. We need to answer the rest. And over the years, we have been answering the rest. And what's really interesting, actually, is that not all these theories are completely debunked. The Even the great chain of being is still, the basis of it is still used today. For example, in taxonomy, we don't order it by complexity and a hierarchy of living things, but we still order things now based on their relationships. But in addition, even Lamarckian evolution, which with the discovery of genetics was put to the side, and the continued, and the continued changes to evolutionary theory, is even coming back in small ways. For example, uh, the newer, a newer field of genetic research known as epigenetics, which we'll probably touch on briefly in the last episode, but it's very new, so it's hard to really discuss concretely. But epigenetics shows that some traits that are developed over the lifetime can be passed on. Your exposure and the stress you experience as someone with gametes, so with eggs or sperm, can actually affect your children. Does that mean that I can affect my genetics? In the genetics you pass on, yes. But we'll talk more about that in the last episode. Is that, I, I, I know we're going to talk about it more, but is that really more complicated things? Or is that something as simple as, like, say, fetal alcohol syndrome? It, it's difficult. We'll get into it, okay? Okay, okay. But you guys are going to have to tune back in for later episodes to find that out. So I hope that this wasn't too boring, or at least it was less boring than sitting through a lecture. How about we go through that? It wasn't a lecture, right, Anna? It wasn't a lecture. There were some weird tangents about turtles, which I don't know if they're staying in this or not. Neither do I. Only editor Anna knows. Only editor Anna knows. So hopefully we'll be seeing you guys in two weeks mm -hmm. to discuss the various mechanisms that evolution goes through, which are some things that have developed both before but been further incorporated since the creation of Darwin's evolutionary theory. So our music is Rainbows by Kevin McCloyd. Our cover art is done by Anna. Ooh. And I hope that in listening to this episode, you know a little bit more about the unknown. And in doing so, that makes things just a little less scary. Keep stretching your neck, people. You can become giraffes eventually. Ananism is a defunct evolutionary theory. It was both created... You can't control me. 